come this morning to worship and to commemorate the most significant week in human history, the week when Jesus went into Jerusalem to rescue the sinner. And so I'm so glad that you would prioritize being here this morning. I know about 75 miles from here, there are patrons today who are greeting some of God's greatest competitors with roars and standing ovations. And I'm sure many of you will be tempted to check your phones for changes in the leaderboard while we're here. But I just want to let you know, if you start to shout or grimace while I'm preaching, we'll know what you're doing. So be careful. For the last several weeks, we've been in a series called King Jesus as we've looked at the Gospel of Mark. And today, we're going to see King Jesus treated like a king as he enters triumphantly into the gates of Jerusalem. Roars, shouts, standing ovations. And so I invite you to join with me as I read from Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to read, maybe a longer passage this morning, verses 7 through 19. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. On the Sunday before his crucifixion, King Jesus enters into Jerusalem with shouts of triumph. On Monday, he leaves the temple as a conspiracy to have him killed is launched. And then on Tuesday, he alludes to a restored relationship with God. I hope to demonstrate today that King Jesus went to Jerusalem to restore our relationship to the Father. Ultimately, King Jesus restored our relationship to the Father through his crucifixion and resurrection. But this morning, we're going to look at those days that lead up to that moment. Beginning with Sunday, which is what we commemorate today on Palm Sunday. The story of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem has always been one of my very favorite passages to read and even to preach. And I think part of it is that the Gospels become very focused right here. The first 
10 chapters of Mark are dedicated to about three years of life and ministry. And now, all of a sudden, the last five and a half chapters are committed to just one week as they focus in on the last week before Christ's crucifixion. Jesus enters into the city. He knows he's going to meet his demise there. We know he will be led out as a, uh, the gates as a defeated captive. But right now, he goes into the gates triumphantly as a coming king. And one thing that's really interesting to me is that Mark gives us 11 verses about the triumphant entry. And about seven of those 11 verses, or seven of those 11 verses, are about the, the acquiring of this donkey that he's going to ride in to Jerusalem. I just feel like it's a pretty insignificant thing for Mark to commit so much detail to. But he talks about this donkey, where it'll be, what's happened to it before now, and how they're to take it, and all of those kinds of things. But I've skipped to verse 7 in our outline because that's where I want to focus this morning. But we can't miss the fact that Mark wants us to know how Jesus got this donkey that he rides into Jerusalem. The first seven verses remind us that Jesus is someone with extraordinary authority. He spoke and sets into motion a series of events that seem really small against the larger issues we know he's about to face in the city. Yet they show that Jesus enters into the city on his own terms, the way he wanted it to happen. Another thing that happens here that makes me enjoy this passage so much is that Jesus leaves his incognito persona behind. Up until this point, he's been telling the, his disciples, don't, don't say anything, don't tell, keep it quiet. Or those that experience his miraculous healing, don't share what you've seen, don't share what you've heard. He tells them to kind of keep it quiet for the most part, but no more. We're now entering a period of time where there will be direct confrontation with Jesus, the king, coming against the religious leaders of Jerusalem. So Jesus sitting on this colt that's never been ridden before and traveling into Jerusalem on its donkey is pregnant with all kinds of meaning. Everywhere else that Jesus travels in the gospel of Mark, he walks. Except when he crosses the sea and then he travels by boat. Except for that one time he decided to walk across the sea, but that's how he does it. So there's something different here. He climbs on a beast. That's how he travels into Jerusalem this time. And not only that, this is a time of pilgrimage. This is where, uh, you know, Jesus and his disciples are going into Jerusalem because of Passover. It's a pilgrimage. And the typical way to pilgrim, as for a pilgrimage into Jerusalem is by foot. So Jesus on this donkey appears to be a kind of claim to authority. And the fact that the donkey has never been ridden before makes it suitable for some sort of sacred purpose or worthy of a king. So the entry on a donkey is pretty important. It also is a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9, uh, in verse 9, he refers to this. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is prophecy hundreds of years before this happens, but he nails it, exactly what happens. Jesus is coming to the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives, and there's this exciting reaction from the people as he begins to come into the city. People start to take off their robes, their cloaks, their, their, uh, their coats, and they start to place them on the donkey so he has a saddle. And then as he travels along, they're laying their coats down in front of him so that the, the donkey's feet don't touch the ground. 
And they're pulling off these leafy branches, which we know are palms uh, from the other Gospels. And they're laying them down in front and they begin to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It's an exciting moment. Those words are taken from the Psalms, a psalm of praise, Psalm 118. Psalm, I mean, Hosanna literally means save us, we pray. That's what they're shouting. But it's also a shout of praise, and that's what they're using it here for. We do know that as people came on pilgrimage into Jerusalem, that the idea was blessed is the one who's coming in to the city of Jerusalem. Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. But now the pilgrims are shouting out to this man, say, blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord as he goes into the city. Can you see the political street theater that's happening right here? It's intense. There's all this exciting that's starting to build. What we've entered into an early political season that we're accustomed to by now in South Carolina, and that's presidential primary politics. We're hosting many national candidates, particularly those that are running for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination right now. I was in D.C. a few weeks ago, and I got at Reagan Airport, I got in the taxi line, and right behind me was one of the U.S. senators running for president with her husband. There was no excitement of chance. There was no throwing down of cloaks. But we know how those political events can be because we've seen them firsthand here in South Carolina. And so these crowds around Jerusalem, particularly because this is the time of Passover, would grow very expectant. Because just as God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt during that first Passover, they're saying, and do it again, God. Do it again. They're waiting expectantly. Could somebody come today and deliver us from the occupying force here in Jerusalem? And Jesus' disciples were anticipating this kind of Messiah figure as well. And so we know they're the ones who likely started the chanting. They're the ones who likely started the hosannas and the laying down of the cloaks and the palm branches and waving them. They wanted a political victory. They wanted a military hero. They could not contain their excitement, so they're just shouting and they're cheering and they're parading in with probably huge smiles on their face because here we come, determined. So what happens? They come into the city gates, they parade right up to the temple, goes into the temple, and what happens? The scripture says, he looks around, and then he leaves. It's getting late, so they head back to Bethany. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? We're here for a victory. That's what we're going to do. We're going to march into the temple, look around, and nice to see y'all, you know, and head out. Well, that's apparently what happens here. You know, we think that we know what we want and we need in Jesus. But rarely does he come the way we expect him. Or rarely does he act in the way that we think he should. The Jews longed for a political victory, for a military hero. Because in their estimation, that's what we need we need somebody on David's throne, not these Romans. Let's get rid of them. Well, I would guess that some of you walking in here this morning have a need that you want Jesus to meet, and you know exactly how he should meet it. And you know precisely what you're asking for, and you're thinking, if I was God, this is what I would do, so surely that's what he's going to do. And that's what you're expecting. And the truth is, that's what you'll take. Let me ask you a question this morning. Can you trust Jesus to know best what you need when you want to run on ahead of him? Can you trust him to be the strategic 
shepherd of your soul who has an end in mind for your life? Can you trust that he is committed to completing the good work in you and that he will never leave you and he will never abandon you? If you have a need that you're asking God to meet this morning, trust him. Trust him that he has your best interest in mind. Now bring to him what's on your heart. But know that he's not forgotten you. Sometimes what we expect from God is different than what we get. But he's always sovereign. He never gives up his rule. He loves us. He's good. You can trust King Jesus. King Jesus did not come to restore political and military might in Israel and Jerusalem. That was not his plan. He came to restore us to relationship with God. He also didn't come to restore the temple to former glory. So let's see what happens on the Monday before the resurrection. Well, there's no record of another triumphal entry. He went back to Bethany, but now it's just a regular pilgrimage in, it appears. Back over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, up to the eastern gate of Jerusalem. But this time, we get to see Jesus' humanity. He's not so regal. What happens? He gets hungry. You think, ah, I need something to eat. Y'all know the feeling. Well, not only that, he's left hungry just like you are sometimes. He walks up to the tree and there's no figs on it. So we all know what that's like. Well, speaking of being hungry, several weeks ago, we talked, or I shared with you that Mark has this um, literary device he likes to use in his writings. It's come to be known as the Markin sandwich. He tells two stories smushed together. He starts off with the one about this fig tree. And then somewhere in the middle, he interrupts it, and he introduces this second story. In this case, it's about Jesus going to the temple. He completes that story, then returns to the first story, the one about the fig tree. So what we're going to do is we're going to put off this little encounter with the fig tree until we get through this encounter at the temple at Jerusalem. Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. Now, this is his second trip in as many days. Remember the day before, he walks in, looks around, heads out. But now we're about to see open confrontation between Jesus and his opponents, his enemies who are at the temple. Now, in some ways, it's really hard to get this, isn't it? To wrap your mind around it. Because you're so used to seeing tender Jesus, caring for needs, not really trying to cause a stir in a lot of ways. The Prince of Peace walks into the temple and stirs up strife in the temple. This passage is typically referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple or maybe restoring it. But what I think we encounter here is Jesus the prophet. Prophets don't just teach with words. Very often they use visual aids. They believe that whole idea that sometimes actions speak louder than words. I think that's what we see in Jesus here in this story. Now sometimes the words aren't, or the message isn't as clear when we use actions, but nonetheless... He uses actions. Jesus gets very demonstrative in communicating his disappointment, his frustration with the state of affairs in the temple. Verse 15 says that Jesus begins driving out those who were buying and selling in the temple. John tells us Jesus has done this before. Two years previous on Passover, he goes into the temple, says he pulls off a belt and starts chasing people out. Evidently, Jesus does not like the temple at Passover. Now let me tell you, it's the busiest time of the year at the temple. It says here he starts throwing over tables. He, he prevents those who are carrying merchandise to even go any further. You know what merchandise they would be carrying? They're sacrifices that they're bringing as an offering to God. 
Well, he puts an end to the business of the temple on this day. And you're thinking, why would he do this? What's he trying to do? We know it attracts all kinds of attention. Our, ver- our best bet here for understanding it is verse 17. It says, and he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. It could be that Jesus was coming to reform the temple because this activity in the court of the Gentiles was preventing worship among the Gentiles. God said, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, the place where the nations could gather was overrun. Money changers, buying and selling, all these animals, people just crowding in. I'm sure there was not a whole lot of prayer happening in the court of the Gentiles. A lot of people also think that Jesus might have been offended by all of the commerce that was taking place inside of this holy place in the temple. We do know he's not just offended by the scam of the changing of the money. Because he doesn't just run out the sellers, he takes the buyers and sends them out too. And he accuses them of turning the temple into a den of robbers, a robber's den. So let's think about that for a moment, okay? The prophet Jeremiah actually speaks about this before Jesus mentions it here. In Jeremiah chapter 7, let me read to you in verses 9, verses 9 through 11. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. So it doesn't seem as though he's accusing them of doing their thievery in the temple. It's not that they're doing the robbing and the thievery there. His primary concern is not that they're coming in and committing sinful activity there. It's become a robber's den. Well, what happens in a robber's den? This is the hideout, right? That's what the, 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 the den of robbers is the hideout. So they go out here and they commit all of this crime and this terrible stuff, and then they retreat, and they go to their hideout. In Jeremiah 9, the prophet Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord and says, you are committing all kinds of terrible things. You're stealing. You're committing adultery. You're murdering. You're lying. You're giving sacrifices over to false gods. You're following other idols and then he says you come in here in the temple with your sacrifices and to the one true God and you say we're safe hands clean we're okay now what does Jeremiah say behold even I has seen it declares the Lord I think Jesus is bringing judgment on the people for the way they treat God they live during the week as if they are their own God and then they return on the Lord's day we'll call it to remove their guilt Is that how it's supposed to work? Well, Jesus causes this great stir. The chief priests and scribes are concerned enough to start plotting to put an end to this whole Jesus movement. How are we going to get rid of him? They were afraid of what he was saying and doing. And the whole crowd watches this. And guess what they don't do? They don't jump in. They don't say, that's right. They don't start the rebellion. They don't launch the coup. It says they're astonished at his teaching. Jesus charged the Jews with living for themselves 
than attempting to hide from God's judgment there in the temple. We cannot hide from the Lord. Um, if you're like me, when you're growing up, you loved the game hide-and-go-seek. It's always fun to be the one who's hiding and not the one seeking, right? Uh, I was talking to Melinda Timmerman, and she said that this past week, in 1420, she played hide-and-go-seek with McKinley Johnson, Bryn and Scott's um, daughter, and said they were there playing hide-and-seek, and she said, Mama Steve, let's hide. And she said, okay, let's hide. And McKinley went, okay. And she hid just like that, you know, and she was hiding. Have you ever thought how silly it is to try and hide from God? Okay. Omnipresence is one of the most unnerving attributes of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I can go to the far side of the sea and you're there. I can put myself in darkness, but it's like light to you. I mean, where are you going to hide from God? Whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, however you've lived, however you're living, God knows. God sees you. But not so fast, sports fans. Omnipresence is also one of the most comforting, comforting attributes of God because you are never too far away. I know you may feel like you are so far lost that nobody could ever find you. Or you're so far gone that nobody's going to care enough to come and rescue you. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's you. That's me. He didn't come to condemn. He came to restore. So stop trying to hide from him. You're like a toddler covering your face. He sees you. And it may sound hurtful, but it is so fulfilling to know that you are seen by God and known by Him and restored to the Father by the Lord. So stop hiding from God and stop justifying your sin. Come clean before the Lord and let Jesus restore you to a relationship with your Heavenly Father. It is not a burden to lay down all your baggage. It's relief. Jesus lifts the heavy burden. He removes the stain of guilt. He renews the strength of the weary. It reminds me of that song, Steve. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. That's what he does. He lifts burdens. He lifts burdens. King Jesus was not interested in political or military gain. He didn't care about the nationalistic traditions of the temple. He cared about making a way for us to be restored into a relationship with God. That's what his entry into Jerusalem is all about. So let's look at the Tuesday before crucifixion. You remember on Monday, Jesus got hungry. He saw a fig tree. It had leaves on it. He thought there must be fruit on it. He goes up to it. There's no fruit. It's not the season for the fig tree to have figs, right? So what does he do? He curses the tree. Nobody will ever eat from you again. So let's look at verses 20 and 21, kind of the ending, I guess, of this first story in the Markham sandwich. As they were passing by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree which you cursed has withered. It's really hard to comprehend Jesus overturning tables, stopping all the activity in the temple. I think it might be harder to understand Jesus looking at a tree and cursing it and saying, nobody's going to eat from you again. You know, just get that, that upset with it. I mean, it's, 
This is the final miracle Mark tells us about that Jesus performed. And you're thinking, his final miracle is to kill a tree? Is that really how we're to remember Jesus? But I think the strange exertion of miraculous power provides us with insight into Monday's activity at the temple. Now, a tree that appears to be blooming out of season points to a problem in the tree. If it looks to have fruit and it doesn't, there's something going on in that tree. The fig tree that Jesus saw may have been diseased. Or maybe it was, you know, dying on the inside. Because growth without fruit is a sign of decay. So what we have happening here is King Jesus possibly is not cursing the tree, but he's just pronouncing the case. He's saying, this tree's diseased. Well, nobody will eat fruit from this again. It's going to die. And here in verse 20, we find out the tree, in fact, withered from the roots up. I think in this fig tree, we find a very memorable object lesson, a parable about hollow religion. This tree is not doing its appointed job. It is to bear fruit. It's not doing. That's the perfect metaphor for the temple in Israel and the people of God. Jesus was returning to a place that's very busy with religious activity. It's Passover, the busiest time of the year. But the activity in the temple has no spirituality. It is a nationalistic, traditional activity with nothing really connected to the heart of these people for the most part. Holman writes, Just as the figless tree could not satisfy Jesus' appetite, so the religious system could not satisfy the spiritual hunger of the people. The temple appeared to be busy with activity. The tree appeared to be busy bearing fruit. But after closer examination, there is a systemic problem with both. There's a problem with the tree. There's a problem with the temple. Jesus was not coming to cleanse the temple or to restore it. I believe he's coming to institute a new order. Let me read to you verses 22 through 26. And Jesus answered saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Basically out of time here. But I think Jesus is communicating here that a restored relationship with God begins with faith. That's what he says. Have faith in God. Ask and do not doubt. So it begins with faith, and it also includes forgiveness. Your Father in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions, is what the verse says. So a restored relationship with the Father is going to involve faith and forgiveness. He also states here that prayer is central to a restored relationship with the Father. You've got to have communication with Him. A restored relationship with the Father should not just appear healthy, should just not appear growing, but it should be deeply rooted in effective prayer. How's your prayer life? So I think the question is, how can we practice effective prayer? I'm just going to give you four quick points here. First thing, effective prayer involves 
you, you must pray receptively. Pray receptively. Prayer is not imposing your will on God, but it's opening up your lives to God's will. Um, I, I heard this analogy, or read this analogy. It's much like a boat hook that a sailor uses when docking a boat. The boatman is not trying to pull the, the shore to the boat, right? That'd be a big problem. If all of a sudden it lets go and it comes to him. He's trying to pull the boat to shore. So in prayer, we should draw ourselves to God and not try to pull God down to us. So we pray receptively. God, what do you have for me today? Second thing, pray confidently. Jesus taught that God is standing ever ready to grant what is good for us. That's what he's willing to do. When we pray with confident faith, we can overcome all kinds of oppression. Nothing is impossible. So we pray confidently. The third thing I think we see here is we pray expectantly. Our prayers should not only focus on our small worlds and our immediate futures, but they should fix our attention on long-term and large-scale. What's in front of us does not discourage us. We pray expectantly. What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. So we pray expectantly. Finally, we pray forgivingly. You cannot make peace with God if we bear animosity for others. That's what the scripture says. That's what Jesus says. King Jesus came to restore our relationship with the Lord, which is going to exemplify prayer because a relationship always is characterized by communication. So King Jesus has left behind the quiet ministry of the Galilee. He's facing his opponents head on in Jerusalem. King Jesus is on mission to restore our relationship to the Father. And that relationship is not restored through political takeover. It's not through the hollow activity of nationalistic temple work, but it's through faith and forgiveness. So the chief priests and scribes are now collaborating to destroy Jesus. So on Tuesday or Wednesday that Judas collaborates with or colludes with the chief priests to betray the Lord, Jesus is going to die. And that's not because the chief priests went out on their plot. But that's because that's God's plan. Jesus came so that he could die. And through his death and his resurrection, you and I can be forgiven. King Jesus wants to enter your life triumphantly today. Will you welcome him with a prayer of Hosanna, save me, I pray? He always answers that prayer. Our Father in God, we thank you as we gather today to worship that we remember that you, Jesus, went on mission to rescue our souls, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of sure demise. We're so thankful for the life that you gave for us so that we might be forgiven and we might find freedom. I pray as you speak to hearts that we would respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have an invitation. Some of you need to make a commitment. Maybe it's to join our church, to follow in believer's baptism, to recommit your life. Some of you, it may be that say, yes, I need to welcome Jesus saying, save me. So I'm going to invite you to stand as our choir sings. I'll be waiting down front. You respond.
just real quick, I want a couple announcements here. Our deacons uh, have their meeting tomorrow evening, so there will be a prayer meeting from some of the deacons. If you have some special needs, you'd like specific prayer, then you can be in the 1420 building at 530, the bottom floor, 530 tomorrow. If you can't make it there, Ben Harding's right over here. You can just write down your request and bring it to him. Also, these deacons will be down front. If you have special needs this morning, college students, we have lunch and Bible study for you in 1420. Hope you'll join over there. I do need to draw attention to Scott and Bryn Johnson, my dear, dear friends who have attended church here, grown up here, and served here for many years. And Scott, you stand up. Scott's our middle school minister. Bryn, you stand up with him. And uh, they have accepted a call, and they, this is their last Sunday with us. They are going to Conway, First Baptist Church Conway, where he'll be serving uh, there in some different capacities. So we're praying for you. Y'all remember to pray for them, and uh, they have a special time tonight uh, with the student ministry. So thank you guys for all that you've done here, and we're praying for you. Well, the week's not over, and uh, it's an exciting week, and so just want to draw attention to that. On Thursday, we remember the Last Supper on Maundy Thursday with the Living Lord's Supper here at First Baptist. It's a great service for reflection. We will share in uh, the Lord's table. And so that's at 6.30 in this sanctuary. Great opportunity for you to be here, bring family and friends. And then also we're anticipating, of course, a wonderful time of celebration and worship on Easter Sunday. And so that's this coming Sunday. And I've got a question for you. Who's your one? Is there somebody that you've been praying for? Somebody that you've written down that you've committed to try to share the Lord with or encourage and even invite? And so Easter Sunday, you remind them we have church at 1030. Uh, but, uh, and then here's the story for all of us. You make sure everybody who's here next Sunday that you're here, your friends are here, your family's here, and you make everybody feel welcome. So um, let me invite you to stand, and uh, we'll pray as we remember this special week. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come before you in worship. We thank you what we remember today, that you, Jesus, went to the cross. You suffered, you died for sinners like me. Pray that you would help us to live with that proper reflective attitude for the great gift you've given us of grace and salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.